Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer um, before we continue with the rest of our service this morning. Father, I thank you for this day. I know that you are in it, uh, that you have uh, already have walked before us in whatever it is that we are going to experience this day, and that you have already determined that and promised that you will walk with us in this day. We acknowledge that you are sovereign, not only um, in this world, but in our own lives. And we want to be a people that live in obedience to you. I thank you that in a world that often uh, is throwing out uh, questions about who you are or whether your word can be trusted, um, I thank you that you have Uh, assured us in many ways that your word is relevant and reliable for our lives. There is nothing that we come to in our lives that you do not have an answer for in your word, a direction for us. So we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that uh, you would make us ever um, students who hunger and thirst for righteousness and for um, your living word. Father, I know that as we gather this morning, there are people that are suffering and experiencing disappointment and loss and fear, sickness. Father, I pray that you would be present in their lives. You have said that when you walk through the valley that you will be there with us and so we, um, we just thank you for that. And so I ask that for those people that are struggling this morning, that they would be so aware of your presence in the midst of whatever that is that they are going through. Father, I just thank you for the privilege of being able to gather this morning as your church, that even in our individual homes, you are present and that uh, these are places of worship uh, wherever we are. So we thank you for being with us this morning. I pray that uh, you would go before us, that you would give us open ears, receptive hearts to receive the truths from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Ebenezer family and friends, and welcome to our 50th online worship service. Can you believe that? 5-0. Wow. I remember when we first made the decision to cancel our in-person services and move online last March. None of us thought we'd still be doing this almost a year later. But here we are, 11 months into a global pandemic, unable to meet in person during the majority of that time, and unable to meet with basically anyone over the last two months. In fact, most of us have very limited contact, if any at all, with any people from our church family. It's been a a strange and incredibly challenging time, hasn't it? Uh, 
So my, my question for us today is, how are you doing? How's the church doing? And with all the changes and disruptions we've experienced personally and corporately this last year, uh, what will the church of the future look like when all this is done? Now, these might not be the exact questions that are on your mind right now, but they are questions that church leaders across the nation have been wrestling with, including the leadership team here at Ebenezer. And today I want to begin an honest conversation about the church of today and the future post-pandemic church. Now, what is unique about this time and why this conversation is so important, timely and relevant is that we all share the common experience of living through a global pandemic. You know, for the record, uh, I actually long for the day COVID is not dominating every news story in every conversation or mentioned in church sermons like this. But the truth is, uh, the COVID pandemic has dominated our lives for this last year. And it's been a hugely challenging time for all of us. Every single person has been impacted in some way. Every one of us has experienced loss during this time. We've all had to make adjustments as we've been forced to adapt to a new reality. And this is true for families, it's true for workplaces, it's true for educational institutions, and it's true for the church. In the beginning of the, at the beginning of the pandemic, most churches were glad just to get their weekend services successfully recorded and uploaded online. Then as that became less daunting, we began to rethink what we put online. At Ebenezer, that meant a more interview style of teaching and bringing in some professionals from across North America to share at our weekend services. And then as the reality of this COVID thing, you know, uh, hit and we knew it was going to be a long-term thing, we, we wrestled with different questions. Like, how do we connect and care for people we no longer can see in person? Because we knew that people are feeling isolated and alone and disconnected. And then most recently, we've been asking questions like, what does God want to teach the church during the season? How does he want to refine and change us in our ways? What's the post-pandemic church going to look like? Because it is certainly going to look different than it, than it did pre-COVID. And how do we prepare our congregation for what is to come? As one author wrote, so many things have changed during this pandemic. Your church is not going to return to a new normal. It's going to return to a new reality. Now, looking back over the last 11 months, we've done some things well and we've done some things right at Ebenezer. Now, what, what is the saying? Crisis is the mother of invention. And it's true that great innovation is born out of great crisis. And we've tried to leverage the resources we've had in the most innovative and creative ways that we can. But we also know that innovation is not a substitute for connection and relationship. And so not only is crisis the mother of invention, it's also the revealer of weaknesses and deficiencies. This past 11 months has exposed and magnified some areas of challenge for us too. And by the way, what I have just said is not just true of Ebenezer. It's true of most churches. I meet weekly with a group of 20 pastors from across Canada for a time of coaching and mentoring, and we all are experiencing the same challenges. And since COVID happened, pastors within our denomination are connecting monthly via Zoom, and, we, and the same struggles are being talked about there. It's systemic. As one pastor from Ottawa described our COVID reality, that we're all sailing over the same waters, just in different boats. Those boats, of course, are the churches. And the pandemic has been like a receding tide. 
It has exposed the ocean floor so that all, we can see all the weeds and, and the garbage and every other type of debris that's there. Now, all those things have always been there. They've just been hidden out of sight and under the surface. And the outgoing tide, influenced by COVID, has exposed a plethora of pre-existing conditions within the church. You know, things like a lack of soul care within the Christian community, the shallowness of our discipleship, our disconnectedness from one another outside of a Sunday morning service, and, and a dislocation of our mission from our contextual neighbors. And I would also add to his list uh, that COVID has exposed things like how reliant we have been on our weekend services and weekday programs, the shallowness of our relationships within our church family, the weaknesses and gaps in connection and care. You know, most of us haven't been to an in-person gathering for almost a year, and, I, and people are feeling more isolated than ever. And with that natural connection of seeing each other uh, during the week, you know, weekly rhythms of our meetings no longer an option, many of us have lost touch with our church family, including pastors losing touch with other people in the church. And another thing is, is another fourth thing is polarizing differences, uh, theologically and politically and eschatologically, which is the views of the end times. You know, it's been a challenge to navigate deep divisions in our culture and within our church family and broader Christian community. And then, of course, there's been dissatisfactions and, and mumblings and, and grumblings. Now, I'm not just meaning in the church. I'm, I'm meaning that, that leaders at every level, in government, in education, in medical world, and in the spiritual community, have been bombarded with comments and criticisms on social media, through email and in private conversations. Now, as I said earlier, over the last 11 months, we've done some things right. And, and, and thankfully and gratefully, we've, we, we've received some words of affirmation and encouragement from you, so thank you for those. But as I also said, we haven't done everything right. And some of you have been kind enough to point out those things to us too. And when I say kind enough, I actually mean it. I, I'm not being sarcastic or passive-aggressive. You know, listen, like, we all love to hear words of affirmation and encouragement. But words of challenge and dissatisfaction are also needed and necessary, especially when they communicate when they're communicated in the right way. And these these grassroots murmurings and rumblings and grumblings can, can be very helpful for leaders. They alert those who lead that not all is well. You know, for example, I'll take it out of our context, but when a baby cries, they're letting their parents know that they're either hungry, tired, wet, or dirty. When a child that's a bit older starts to whine and complain, it usually means that they're tired or something in their life is bothering them that they don't know how to express. You know, for every wife out there, when your husband starts to whine and complain, it usually means that he's hangry. He needs a Snickers bar, just like the TV commercial. You see, in, in leadership, these grassroots grumblings need to be taken seriously. It alerts those who lead that not all is well and that something needs to change or something needs to be addressed. These murmurings are normal, they're natural, and they're actually necessary. No leader is going to be able to avoid or escape them. However, there are times though that these murmurings and rumblings and grumblings can be harmful to both leaders and the broader general community. They become harmful when, when the murmurings attack others. 
They're harmful when the complaining goes underground or behind closed doors, when it's overly critical or negative, or when there's a steady stream of complaints but the absence of any kind of solution. They're harmful when, when they begin to target a person or attack someone's character without proper evidence or process. They're, they're harmful when, when they make assumptions and judge another's motives, or when they intentionally spread discontent or actively seek others who might share their perspective so they can commiserate together. They're harmful when they, the murmurings and grumblings uh, become demands on leadership rather than the conversation that seeks to draw people in and bring understanding. All these things destroy community and they can fuel conflict in a community. Now, here, here's the reality. Uh, no one person and no leader is going to have all the insight and wisdom and skill set and resources to recognize, understand, and handle everything that comes their way. But good leaders have their ear to the ground. They actively listen to what others are saying even when they don't agree. Good leaders seek to understand. They, they want to grow. They're open to change and they, they encourage honest feedback. Let me just throw a shout out to our mayor, Charlie Clark. Uh, this past week, uh, he met with a group of pastors from the city to hear our concerns about the wording of the proposed conversion therapy bylaw. And I believe that he was the only mayor in Canada that was willing to meet with his local religious leaders. That's good leadership. Now, this morning, I want to look at, at two occasions where people uh, were murmuring and grumbling against the leadership of their day. The first is from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus chapter 18. And it's a lesson in leadership given to Moses by his father-in-law, Jethro. And the second is the New Testament, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. And it is a description of the early church leaders finding their way through a, a challenging, potentially volatile church issue and problem. Now, I'm just going to introduce these two stories today and give a, a big picture overview of each because in the weeks to follow, we're going to dig into each text more fully. The first story is Exodus 18. Here's the context. The, this story occurred very early in Israel's journey to the Promised Land out of Egypt. They were about a month or two in um, their journey and they were camped in the desert near Mount Sinai where Mount Moses was going to receive the law from, from God. And so everyone was pretty new at the whole experience. Moses was finding his way as a leader and the roughly two million people, yeah, two million that he brought out of Egypt were finding new rhythms in their uh, disrupted lives. However, um, in that short period of time, that month and a half or so, the people had, had witnessed and experienced God's miraculous power. They, they saw God's provision of manna for the nation. They, they saw God's miraculous provision of water for them in the desert and provision of meat for all the people to eat. They even uh, experienced for themselves a, a military victory over a much stronger, much more organized army of, of Amalek. Now we're told at the beginning of chapter 18 that, that Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, who himself was a priest and leader of a clan, came and met Moses in the desert where the Israelites had set up camp. 
and the primary reason for his visit was to bring his daughter, Zipporah, who is Moses' wife, and their two sons back to Moses. So let's pick up the story uh, in verse 5 of chapter 18. This is what it says. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, saying, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your, and your two sons. And so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they greeted each other and then they went into the tent. Moses uh, told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Now Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I'm just going to jump down to, to verse 13. We'll pick up the story there. So basically what's happening here is is it's just a visit and they're catching up on their lives and there's no intent from Jethro to to give instructions to Moses. That wasn't in the plan. But verse 13 says this, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him. He says, well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. And whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Hmm. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Moses, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now, let me just stop there. I want to just um, raise a couple of questions and then make a few observations about the story that I've just read. First question. Was Moses working hard? Well, well, absolutely he was. Um, Verse 13 tells us that that he took his seat in front of the people and worked from morning till evening, judging and serving the people. So he was a hard worker. That's not the issue. Question number two. Was Moses doing what was expected of him and what he understood his role to be? And again, the answer is yes. You know, Moses responded to his father-in-law saying, you know, I go there because the people come to me and seek God's will. And when they have a dispute, I'm the one that has to solve it. You know, that's, that's what they understood. And this seems to be, have been the accepted pattern of leadership in the context that they were in. It was likely learned from what they saw modeled back in Egypt. But here's question number three. Was it the, the best way or even the right way? Well, no. At least not according to Jethro, his father-in-law. He said, what you're doing is no, not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. Because the work is too heavy for you, you cannot do it alone. So it, it was a challenge for Moses and, and, and Jethro could see that what they were doing was not sustainable. 
Now here's the fourth question. Were the people happy? Well, well, well let me put it back to you. Um, would you be happy if you had to stand in line all day in the desert? You know, imagine how frustrating it would be for the people who Moses was not able to see that day. Like maybe you were just next in line and then they told you, no, it was time to shut it down. You had to go through the whole process again the next day. That would have been, you know, very irritating. I'm sure people were incredibly frustrated. Well, what about Moses? Was he happy? <laughs> well, well, no, he wasn't. He was wearing himself out. The task in front of him was overwhelming. Two million people to judge by himself. It was unsustainable. Now, here's what I want you to see from this story. The, the issue was not Moses' heart. It was Moses' systems. You see, Moses' heart was in the right place. He wanted to serve the people and meet their needs. But his delivery system was flawed and insufficient. You know, Jethro proceeded to tell to help Moses rethink and shift his systems to spread out the load of care and leadership. And it wasn't just a tweak, it was a complete overhaul of what they were doing. It, it, was, it was very systematic, it was very organized and structured, and it was a plan for care so that no one would fall through the cracks. He legislated everyone into smaller, more manageable groups. If you look at the story, which I didn't read, but it tells us that, that he says you need to find leaders over tens. Now, that, was, that would be about 200,000 people, if my math is correct. Leaders over 50s, that's 40,000 leaders. Leaders over 100s, which is 20,000 leaders. And then leaders over thousands, which is 2,000. So that's a lot of people to lead and to care for those that, that were in the desert. Now, this is no small undertaking. Now, let me go back to the context that we find ourselves in today here at Ebenezer. I know that people have fallen through the cracks this last 11 months. I, I know people have felt alone and isolated and disconnected. And if you could see my heart and if you could read my thoughts, you'd know honestly it just kills me. You may be one of those people who have been murmuring, asking questions like, well, where's the church? Why hasn't the pastor called me to find out how I'm doing? Don't they care? Now, I know, I, I know words can be empty, but let me just tell you my heart. We, we do care. This is 100% not a heart thing, but it could be a system thing. You know, the COVID pandemic has shown us that our current system of care and support is really insufficient. And what we're, what we're sensing or knowing is that we need a system shift. And so next week, we're going to dive into this passage a little bit more closely, and we're going to see what we can learn from the systems that Jethro encouraged Moses to put in place. But what I can tell you is that it's going to take more people than, current, than, than the current staff team to pull off the kind of care and support that the people of Israel experienced in the desert. You know, even if we just adopted Jethro's system of, of care at Ebenezer and use the same math, we would need, in my calculations, about 195, 195 peop, people that are trained leaders actively caring for the Ebenezer family to provide the same level of care that, that they experienced in the desert. 
Uh, that's nothing like the 60,000 or whatever that Moses had, but, but 195 people is still a lot of trained leaders. And I'm not sure we have that many leaders ready to jump into that kind of care, which is not an indictment against the quality of our church family and you, because we have amazing people here at Ebenezer. I know that. It, it is, however, an indictment against our systems or lack of care. And I might add, and most other church systems, not just ours, because this topic of, topic of care and connection is a chronic problem COVID has exposed in most, if not, if not all, churches. One last question before I move on to the next story. So, Moses was a good leader. So why, why couldn't he see and fix the problem? Why did it take a father-in-law stopping by and stepping in to solve the issue? Well, here's the answer. It's because what may seem easy and obvious to one person is not always easy and obvious to another person. I like to say that, that every leader needs a Jethro in their life, one that can see new and better ways and come alongside those who have the mantle of leadership and help them navigate new and, and, and difficult times into better ways and better systems. That's what we need. And, and some of you maybe are seeing things more clearly and you could be a Jethro in some of our lives. Now back to Moses and Jethro. This is how that chapter concludes. It says that uh, Mo Jethro says to Moses, if you do this, and God commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That the leaders can stand the strain and people will actually go home satisfied instead of feeling overwhelmed and leaving frustrated. And Moses listened to his father-in-law, it says in verse 24, and did everything he said. Now, I, I think it, it's fair to say that, that uh, you know, we need a system overhaul. And we're going to talk about that again next week. We're gonna, and the way we're going to do this is we're going to take an honest look at our current perspectives. In other words, how we, how we view things, how we think about things, and our practices, how we do th those things, and, and identify some shifts that we need to make personally and organizationally in the way we think, in the way we practice, so that we can be more effective. And what I know is that if we don't change our systems, the future is going to be sadly predictable. You're going to get more and more frustrated, wondering where the church is, usually meaning where the pastors are, and the, the staff are going to burn themselves out trying to connect with everyone. It's not a heart thing. It's a system thing, and we need a system shift. Now let's turn to the second story of people murmuring and grumbling in the Scripture, this time in the New Testament, Acts chapter 6. Now for the benefit of those who may not know this story, let me once again set the context. The church was, was brand new. It was in its infant stages of development. And in those early days, things were happening so quickly and so supernaturally that I'm sure the disciples felt like they were drinking from a, water, a fire hose. Now over the period of a few short months, the disciples and earliest followers of Jesus, which at that early time was about 120 people. So the 12 disciples and then about 100 or so followers. And those people, they witnessed the death and resurrection 
of Jesus. And then 40 days later, they witnessed his ascension up to heaven. And then they were, then they were undeniably uh, filled supernaturally with the Holy Spirit and given new boldness and power to share the good news that Jesus was alive and, and Lord of all. And then, and then they actually, coming out of that experience of being filled by the Spirit, that they, they preached their first sermon ever, it was Peter. And, and the response that, that was elicited from that sermon was, was absolutely astounding. Astounding. It, it, was, it was a huge response. It says in the Scriptures that 3,000 people believed the message that day and they joined the community of faith. <laughs> I, I can't imagine those early days, how wild they must have been. I'm sure, I'm sure the, the apostles were trying to figure things out as they went. It was, it was, I like to say, it was beautiful chaos. In Acts chapter 2, we read that these new believers, they, they just gorged themselves with the apostles' teaching. They were just taking it all in. They devoted themselves to prayer. They just couldn't get enough praying because they knew they were praying to this holy, powerful, um, living God. It says they enjoyed deep fellowship with other new believers. They sacrificially shared the resources with others and they saw firsthand miracle after miracle and other demonstrations of God's magnificent power. They even experienced times of persecution, but through it all, God continued to bless them and each day new people were coming to faith. It was amazing. But it wasn't long until this idyllic church began to experience some serious problems and tensions. And that's where the story of Acts chapter 6 picks up. It says there that about that time, while the number of disciples continued to increase, a complaint arose. Interesting. Well, here's the complaint. Greek-speaking disciples accused the Aramaic-speaking disciples because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food service or distribution. So, so there's some ethnic tensions here. There were some um, overlooks, so people felt overlooked in, in what was happening. And so uh, what happened is, is the 12 called a meeting of all the disciples. And they, and they said, um, it isn't right for us to set aside the proclamation of the gospel or the preaching of the word in order to serve tables. No, not that they couldn't. Now let me just stop here for a second and make a few observations and ask a few questions. You see, um, here's the first observation. In the story of Moses and the Israelite people, um, it was primarily a system issue. But in this story, it's primarily a mission issue. The apostles were feeling the tension of their many roles. The role of caring for the needs of the flock under their care and their mission and calling to preach the gospel to the whole world. And they knew that they couldn't do both things well and so they had to choose the better. Now, were they capable of serving the widows? Of course they were. Could they have? Well, yes, they could have. But could they do it all? Well, no, they couldn't. You know, something had to give. That tension between good and better things is a tension leaders constantly wrestle with. And once again, a system was put in place, very different from the system Moses put in place, I, I might add. And we're going to look at this one as well in a couple weeks. It's a system that involved 
a new way of thinking about the people and leaders and the roles that they play. This is the beginning of what we now call the priesthood of believers. And it marked the beginning of the church being made up of people uniquely gifted and called to fulfill specific roles within the church for the, the sake of the church and for the sake of the whole. And so what they did, as we see in verse 3, is it says, brothers and sisters, carefully choose seven well-respected men from among you. They must be well-respected and endowed with the Spirit and exceptional with wisdom. And we will put them in charge of this concern. And this decision freed up the apostles to do what God required of them and called them to do. And so what they said is in verse 4, and we, as for us, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now thankfully, this, pro this proposal pleased the entire community. And so then they selected Stephen, a man filled by the Holy Spirit with exceptional faith and other people like Philip and Timon and Nicholas and other people. And the community presented these seven to the apostles who prayed for them and laid hands on them, which is, which is they empowered them to do the work of ministry. And the result, it says in verse 7, is that God's word continued to grow and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. Now, back to our context here. As we have wrestled with this shift, we, we realize that, that we need a mission shift. We need to think differently about what mission is. We talked about that a bit a few weeks ago with temple spirituality, but there's more to it. And we need to maybe rethink roles in the church and our part in that. And, and we need to do these things so that we can continue to grow deep in our faith, grow in our care for one another, and still be fruitful as a church as we reach out to people who don't know the great news that Jesus is Lord. So that's what's in store for the next three to four weeks. A hard look at a system shift, a hard look at, at a mission shift, and, and a deep look at a role shift. And in each teaching, we're going to be, we're going to name and challenge the current perspectives and practices, like I said. And then we're going to identify the biblical and new ways that we need to think and act so that our church is healthy and growing and so that we become fruitful and so that we can be uh, the church that's ready for the, what comes after the pandemic is over. Now let me just say that this sermon series is more than a teaching. What we're going to talk about over the next three to four weeks is, is, is really a fundamental shift in how we do things. And it's necessary. The pandemic crisis has exposed something we knew was always there. But either we didn't have time to do the important things that needed to be done or we were just comfortable with how things were going. Either way, that's no longer an option for us because crisis is not just a revealer of those things that are wrong. It's actually an accelerator. And this pandemic crisis is accelerating both our opportunities that we have in front of us and also our need for change. As one author said, if there's ever a moment to rethink how 
You do what you do. It's now. So I invite you to join the conversation over the next three to four weeks, to lean in, to be honest and open about what needs to shift in our lives and in the life of the, of the church. And some of those things are going to be seismic things. And then let's, let's pray that by God's grace and through His power, we'll be able to make those shifts so that we will accomplish, so that He will accomplish in us what He needs to do, so that we can accomplish, so, so that we can accomplish uh, through us what He longs to do. This is going to be a great series. It's going to be a critical series for us. And it's going to be a series where we, where we learn how to, to shift to those things that matter most. So would you pray for me, not just now, and, and let me pray for you, but let's pray together that God would do His good work in us. Let me pray. So God, thank you for our church family. Uh, guide us today as we think about these things and in the next few weeks. And God, would you open our eyes to see what the reality is of our thinking and where it's flawed and needs to be adjusted? Would you open our eyes to look at our lives and the life of our church to see what practices need to be altered so that we can be the church that you've called us to be? We long to be faithful and we long to be fruitful. And so help us to do these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.